you have any questions or things you'd like to talk about <laughs> after your first day of... Sounds like a beginning of course question. <laughs> um, he does have quite a specific reporting form and there is a sheet available from the office which describes it in quite a bit of detail. But the basic format of it, and it's one that could be used um, even at home uh, with respect to one's daily sitting. Basically, it's reporting on the primary object with quite a bit of detail. For example, you know, there was the rising. I noted it as rising, and I felt pressure, expansion, tension, whatever one actually feels. There's the falling. I noted it as falling. I felt this, this, and this. And to take a short period of the sitting where you're really tracking the sequence of each object that arises. So there's a thought. I noted as thinking it disappeared. So you always report what the object is, whether you note it, and what happened to it. If there was a sound, I noted as hearing. I noted it three times. It ended. I came back to the rising falling. Like that. And so you just track very carefully at the arising object, whether you note it, what happens to it. Obviously, you can't report a, the contents of an entire sitting, but you could take general description of the primary object, a few minutes you know, of the sequence, and then just bring in any other unusual thing that might have happened, reporting in the same way. It's very demanding. You know, but you really have to <laughs> be present in order to know what's arising and what happens to the object. Usually, it's the right with Upandita Sayadaw. He he gives a lot of emphasis to the rising, falling. Sometimes he uses sitting, touching. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked before when you talked about the purifications of the purification of you and you talked a little bit about you uh, throughout the course and uh, I was sort of wondering what it is um, as we meditate there's certain uh, uh, ways of observing like there's sort of the identified observer, the non-identified observer, and then um, the sort of selfless merging with the object. Uh, is that what it's referred to as view, or what does be used, or is a view more uh, mundane in terms of uh, a mental perspective? So the question was about purification of view. 
in that particular stage of practice, a stage of insight, and whether it has to do with the way we're, we're observing phenomena, with the range of being very identified with it to not identified. That purification of view refers to something quite specific, which is the clear, direct seeing that all there is, is Nama Rupa. That is object being known. And so it's really the first clear understanding of selflessness. Right? That, that all that's happening in any moment is something being known. And so there's a, there is a purity of view in that. And you can, just in talking about it, you can almost drop into the purity of that view. Because in the direct seeing of that or experience of that, we understand quite deeply that there's no I, no self apart from this process of things being known moment after moment. That doesn't mean that subsequent to that we never become identified again. In that process, that habit, that conditioning is very strong right, of becoming identified and then remembering and letting go. But from that point of purification of view, even that process of getting identified is understood as selfless. And there are the subsequent uh, or deepening realization of anatta. And that's, that's like the, the first major one that really changes our way of understanding things, but it also progresses on deeper and more complete uh, levels. What do you mean exactly? Are you intentionally bringing it back, or it just happens? Yeah, but that's after you miss it, and then it comes back. Was there an intention to bring it back, or was there a sudden remembering? Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that does happen quite a quite a lot, and it's not actually retrospective. Really, what's happening in that moment is a moment of remembering, and you're mindful of that. And so that could even be the note, remembering, 
So you, you're actually right there in the moment. It just happens to be a memory of the thing that happened a moment before. Mm-hmm. I think that often happens. <laughs> <laughs> And repeatedly. (laughs) Remembering uh, as an intention, kind of um, to see what happened in a way, and doesn't this help, kind of, if this situation occurs again, to be mindful then? Right. The question was was. in line with the last one, of whether it sometimes is helpful to intentionally recall something that happened in order to uh, learn from it, basically. Um, I think it could be helpful at times. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't get into a consistent habit of it, though because then one's actually missing what would just be arising naturally in that moment. It's like we're always looking back. But at times, for the purpose of um, understanding something, you know, it, it, it could be of help. But generally, in the process of meditation, it's like we're just surrendering. We're just surrendering to the flow. Right, not so much looking back at what just happened. Then I would kind of note the intention of mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Although, as I say, there might be particular times when it would have a use. Mm-hmm. But generally, it's just to let go. Because it's all empty anyway. <laughs> <laughs> process of identification, that's not transparent to me. So could you make that transparent to me? (laughs) (laughs) Say with a a memory or an emotion. When you say that, the question was about the process of identification not being transparent to to him. What do you mean exactly, not being transparent? You don't see it clearly? I mean, say an emotion right now, there has to be a thought that's mine somehow and a a clinging to it. I I don't see the sequence. Right. The, The question was about, particularly with an emotion, uh, the sense that the process of identification uh, perhaps involves some thought that it's mine or some sequence. <laughs> um, I don't think it's. I don't think the process of identification is necessarily or even particularly a thought process. You know, that this is mine. This is belongs to me. Rather. I think the process of identification is a function of being lost 
in whatever it is. And being lost means not being aware of. So when there's simply resting in awareness, purely, nakedly, without anything extra, the identification is not there. But that's the meaning of mindfulness in the sense of mindfulness being undistractedness. So actually, the distractedness is the movement of mind. That's the being lost in. Whereas the non-movement of mind, the non-doing of mind, is the simple resting in awareness, not doing anything. And in the non-doing, the non-identification is... So by being lost, what do you mean being lost? That you're sort of ignoring... Not not being not being aware of what's present, particularly in the it's an interesting question because it really uh, points back to the nature of wisdom. You know, in the sense that there might be anger arising in the mind. We might know that we're angry, but still be quite identified with it. So it's not that we don't know that we're angry. We do know, but we're lost in it or caught in it or identified with it. The wisdom awareness, which is undistracted and not lost, is really that awareness which sees whatever's arising in the context of the three characteristics. And that's why everything always comes back to that as being the process of insight. Because in noticing the three characteristics in one way or another, either the empty nature of the object or the awareness or the unreliability or the impermanence, in the seeing of that, in that wisdom mind, the function of that seeing is non-grasping. Sometimes it's helpful just to say that this is not self. Maybe you don't even see it. I mean, that's enough. It, it might help. Okay. That's kind of the Dharma coach. Okay. It, it could be helpful. Mm-hmm. 
once we got a letter to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> there is, there is actually. It is instant. I don't know whether you were uh, early on in the retreat. Uh, I think both Michelle and I at different times talked about working with afflictive emotions. And in those talks, it was really about this question of how, how to unhook you know, when we're caught, when we're lost. Uh, and there were a few steps in that, which I'll just run through briefly, but you know, you might want to listen to that talk again. Uh, often we're caught or identified because we're not recognizing clearly what the feeling state is. We may be misperceiving it, right? not seeing it, not recognizing it clearly. If there's not a clear recognition, there can't be acceptance. And if there's not acceptance, there can't be a letting go. So the clear recognition is one piece. Often there's something going on underneath the state that actually keeps fueling it. You know, sometimes, for example, underneath anger there's hurt. And if we're not seeing what's underneath it, so the anger keeps generating more and more anger, and we're lost in it. So sometimes you have to look either for the state underneath or associated states. Sometimes it's very helpful to look back with the question, look back at the nature of the mind itself. What is it that's knowing this mental state? That's knowing that the state is being identified with. So it's like you're you're turning your attention back onto the nature of awareness itself. That can be a way of cutting through. So there are all these Until it's not there. (laughs) You know, something else that I think it's hard to remember all the things one might have said in the course of the course, but something that helped me a lot with that was when I felt caught in a in a mind state, extrapolating over time and projecting myself over time and realizing and actually saying to myself, you know, in six months I'm not going to even remember this. Not only six months, five minutes. <laughs> Just as a reminder, yeah, this, this thing which seems so solid and seems that I'm so caught in, it's a reminder of the very impermanent insubstantial nature, even if we're reminding ourselves on the intellectual level at first, it can sometimes just cut kind of the the bond. And sometimes not. Sometimes we just kind of sit and wait it out. But if you know, even as you're sitting and just being with it for as long as it's there, if the view is right, if you're doing that with equanimity, 
with the understanding, yes, this is what's happening, this is okay, then it's not a problem. What I was suggesting in terms of a further investigation really is to be used when we feel caught. If something is just washing through and we're with it and we're open to the different elements of thought and sensation and actual mind state, there's no need to further investigate because there's just an openness and this is what's arising and it's washing through and there's no problem. It's when we we really feel caught by something. Yeah, and, and to unpack it in the way you suggested also, to see the components, the thoughts, the sensations. But if there's still that feeling of being caught, then you might want to investigate a little further and see if there are things that are not yet being seen in it. I mean, always, for me, the great impetus to investigate is suffering. I mean, if I'm, if I'm in a state of some contraction, it really piques my interest. Well, it does, you know. It's if I'm contracted, I want to understand what's going on. How is it happening? What's the process? What's going on in my mind? How am I relating to what's happening that's causing the contraction? You know, if the mind is not in a state of contraction, but just resting in an easy, open, spacious awareness, then it's just all passing by. You know, and there's no problem with that. So suffering, both, you know, in meditation, I think, and now that you'll be leaving soon, going back into the world, it really is the uh, fire of liberation. You know, we can take all the, all the many situations of suffering in our lives on so many levels, you know, to kind of emotional suffering or physical or relational or whatever, and really look. Let that be the cause of our uh, insight. Could you talk about um, the, part, the, uh, the place of sensual pleasure in the, in the path of awakening? The, the Buddha, it seemed like the Buddha and then not the suttas was constantly reminding the monks to withdraw from central pleasure to awaken. So, and I can see why, because of the, the potential for grasping attachment. But it also seems like he was pointing towards um, something inherent within our desire for central pleasure. is almost like antithesis to awakening. Like, I, I can see it's more than just um, <coughs> Like a common answer would be, be with sensual pleasure, with non-grasping. You know, it comes, enjoy it. It goes, don't grasp. You know. But I, my sense is, he's pointing to something more. The question was about the role, if there is one, 
of sensual pleasure in the path of awakening. Now, and it seems as if the Buddha, especially, you know, in the teachings and the suttas and discourses, he's really very often advising people to withdraw from that. You know, and what what is that about? A couple of things to say about this, which is a huge, huge topic. One, the Buddha. Uh, tailored the teachings dependent on who, whom he was speaking to. So when he was speaking to nuns and monks, it was in one context. When he was speaking to lay people, householders involved in the world, it was another. You know, and different kinds of activities might be appropriate in one arena and not appropriate in another. So that's just one, one level. There's an obvious danger in sense pleasures in the sense of a liability to get attached. But there's no avoiding. I mean, here we are in a body. What do sense pleasures mean? The eye sees and the ear hears and the nose smells and the body feels things. So there's no way to cut off pleasant feeling. And the Buddha wasn't suggesting that. So it's not so much a question of cutting it off, it's a question of, is that our priority? Does our life revolve about the going after or the acquisition of sense pleasures? And that's where the Buddha said it's futile and endless. It doesn't lead any place. It's not conducive, or it's not the going after, not not the experience, because there's no way not to experience sense objects. They're going to be coming. But when the mind is so entranced by the pleasure of them, and that becomes the priority of our lives, we're really just caught in a samsaric realm. One of the things that becomes increasingly obvious as sort of meditation practice goes on. And the Buddha talked about this in terms of renouncing a a lower pleasure for a higher pleasure or a greater pleasure. And so, for example, jhanic attainment can happen when there's a withdrawal from the sense, from the external sense pleasures. We renounce that to experience a greater happiness. We can renounce the jhanic happiness for insight happiness, which is an even higher one, which does not happen in the jhanic state. We have to come out of that. We can renounce insight happiness for nibbanic happiness. Now, so there's that element of it too, that we don't, we don't hold on to a lower which keeps us from experiencing the greatest.
I think it's really, and especially for us, I mean, we all here are lay people living in the world in different kinds of relationships. I think the, the quality to look for, you know, in our relationship to sense pleasures of all kinds uh, is the quality of addiction. You know, on, on all its levels. Is the mind addicted to this? Or is it resting in a free awareness of it? You know, and we need to be very honest because they are very seductive, as you know. Part of the reason I asked that, was, even as you say that last statement of is the mind resting in a free awareness? And one of the um, kind of classic rationalizations is well, I do this, whatever it is, see 10 videos a week or whatever it is, but I do it with awareness, so it's okay. Right. So there's this kind of a... Right, the question is whether... The, the comment was how often we can rationalize sort of our behavior of indulgence by saying, oh yes, I'm resting in awareness, it's okay. I think here's where it takes a very great quality of honesty and direct looking. We can have a concept that we're resting in awareness, which is very far from whether we actually are. I mean, you see even in this context where there's no videos and no TV and no distraction and silence, how difficult it is not to be lost. You know, you have just finished the easy part of the retreat. (laughs) The next half, that is, of going out into the world, it's the same practice. It's just as we talked so often about this time, making this time seamless, and of how whatever one is doing is the practice. That's exactly the same understanding we need to bring to our life in the world. This process of mind and body, of nama rupa, does not stop when we break silence here. Or when you leave IMS and go back. It's exactly the same process going on and the same quality of awareness is needed. So it's tremendously challenging. And I find this one of the most interesting and inspiring aspects of the Dharma coming to the West, you know, over these last 25 years or so. And that is the development in our culture of a large group of people who are committed to awakening. We're really committed to the highest goal and yet not doing it in the context of a monastic situation, which is pretty unusual. That's not how it's happened before. An interesting question is whether we can do it. You know, I see it really as a great experiment in the transmission and unfolding of the Dharma. And for all of us, it's really 
trying to figure out how we can live our lives in a way that furthers liberation. If that's what our interest is, you know, if that's what our goal is, it's not easy. And it really is a question of making choices. Really, that's what renunciation means. It means choosing this rather than that. I give this up in order to do this. And so it really poses very uh, deep questions for how we live, how we choose to live. Wait, say this last thing again. It didn't it doesn't feel right to what? When I when I work in the I don't think so. I think that's a very good point. You know, if there's a conditioning that is afraid to meet experience in some way and that we're kind of contracted out of fear of opening, that very often that's precisely what we need to do. And even in the kind of classical Buddhist text, there's uh, examples of this, talked about in the context of the monastic life, but really with application uh, for just what you're saying. I don't know whether Steve Smith mentioned this in his talk on uh, types or not, psychological types. But the Buddha recommended that greedy types should live in very unpleasant surroundings. And aversive types should really be in very pleasant surroundings because they need to open to the beauty that's in the world. I knew I was a greedy type when I read that because I wanted to be an angry type. (laughs) So I could have the beautiful surroundings. (laughs) So it revealed my true nature. (laughs) Of where the line is? Yeah, I think as as with the whole question of right effort, it's not that we find the the line and suddenly land there and yet this is it. It really is you know going back and forth on both sides and paying attention. You know, and so when you're feeling contracted or pulled back from experience, 
living in a way that somehow opens you to the beauty of experience of life. If you feel like you're getting sucked in, you're getting lost, you're getting addicted, then it's kind of moving back a little bit. You know, and I think all life is very much uh, that modulation. But we need to be paying attention. Mostly what happens is that we just are acting out old habit patterns. You know, and really the training that you've undergone for these last months, and it's so powerful, is just the training of being awake, which actually gives us the option of making choices. If we're not awake, if we're not aware, (laughs) our life is like a big sleepwalk. You know, because we're just acting out the condition, acting out the conditioning. That's the tremendous, tremendous illuminating power of that simple act of mindfulness, of awareness, of wakefulness. We know what's going on. And in the knowing, we can choose. Is this helpful? Is it not helpful? Is it conducive to awakening? Is it not conducive? I mean, the Buddha gave a very simple reference point as a measure for our actions, whether it's our actions relative to sense pleasures or living in the world, the choices we make. He said, is it conducive to letting go? He used, at least in translation, the word dispassion, non-clinging, non-grasping. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. So in whatever we're doing in our lives, we can look. Is this conducive to non-clinging? Or is what I'm doing just strengthening clinging or grasping? And we'll see that we do that a lot also. So we don't want to create a big superego, you know, which is con- continually judging ourselves for all the times that we choose to do something which we might even know is not conducive to letting go. And we want to put that in a big space of awareness too. This is quite a trip. (laughs) It really is. It touches every single aspect of our lives.
I don't know where it's going. And it might be that. You know, it might be that at a certain stage in our careers, our spiritual careers, we'll all realize, get me to a... (laughs) 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 Yeah, we realize, yeah, the simplicity of it and the ease of it just feels like, why not? And maybe not, you know, and in in some of these, particularly, uh, particularly some of the Mahayana texts, although even in the Pali canon, uh, there are stories of great enlightened lay people, you know, who are living the lay life in the world and free. So I think there's the whole range of possibility where we're going as kind of a cultural phenomenon of the Dharma. I don't know. It's a possibility. <laughs> I'd be a little cautious about <laughs> creating models. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it's one could sit and speculate endlessly about what it's going to look like. One of the interesting things that I've learned from studying with quite a number of different teachers, none of them looked like each other. No, they didn't. I mean, they were all very different in personality, in expression, in lifestyle, ranging from the strictest, I mean, the strictest interpretation of the monastic rules to quite engaged in the world. And all of them, in their different ways, were manifesting uh, love and compassion and wisdom to you know, a tremendous extent. Deepama, you know, we've talked about a lot. She was a householder. She, she had a family. She had grandchildren. She lived in the world. So I would just be cautious about creating a model. I think if our commitment... The Buddha laid out very simply the three trainings that are necessary to fulfill the path of liberation. And I think if we view our life as the cultivation of these three trainings, 
then however it turns out will be fine. It's the training in morality, in non-harming, and not simply being satisfied with our current level of understanding, but as with everything else, realizing that that... There are many levels of refinement to our understanding of non-harming. And so we really work with that in our lives. That becomes an area of practice, of cultivation. The development of the meditative factors of effort, mindfulness, and concentration, that's an area of cultivation. And the, the training in wisdom. You know, really that penetrating insight into the nature of things. So in whatever we're doing, you know, whether we're monastics, whether we're lay people, whether in the world, out of the world, this is what needs to be done. Don't, uh, don't underestimate the importance of the cultivation of sila. It's the foundation on which everything else rests and there is such a beauty in it and such a richness in it. The Buddha talked about that as being the true inner beauty of a person. And in our culture, we're so concerned with outer beauty and it misses the point completely. I don't know if you remember from early on in the retreat that poem by Galway Canal, St. Francis and the Sow. There's one line in it that it's beautiful. It says, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. You know, when I hear that line, it just resonates with the whole experience and cultivation and practice of sila. Because that is the loveliness of each person. It's especially applicable, you know, at this time as you're getting ready to leave and be in the world. The world is a fantastic field of practice for this. You know, and then the development of the meditative, of concentration, of mindfulness, and then of wisdom. So it's not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated to understand what we need to do. But we just need to do it. That's the question. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's a very interesting one because I think it really is for 
maybe in the ancient days of India and in Nalanda University, you know, this same kind of thing was happening, where where people in the various schools and traditions practice side by side, and there was a lot of cross fertilization. But certainly in the last, I don't know how many centuries, each of the traditions has been quite isolated from one another and not much uh, contact. You know, the West and America in particular, sort of the nature of our culture is the melting pot. And in some way that's what's happening. You know, with the Dharma, all the traditions are coming together. As you say, people are practicing from different traditions. I think a lot of care is needed. I think that it's important to be very grounded, very rooted in one as the basis of understanding and being able then to incorporate influences from other sides. If in the beginning of one's learning, of one's practice, do a little of this and a little of this and a little of this, I think it could get very confusing. But at a certain point, I think that richness is available and it can all be integrated. There's a wonderful line from the third Zen uh, ancestor where he says, there is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. You know, and... And more and more I appreciate the beauty and the openness of that. All the different teachings, the different traditions are skillful means. That's all. They're all fingers pointing at the moon of liberation. And so if that's our reference point, we want to use, we want to use the tradition in order to come to that place ourselves, but not be attached. That's certainly one one way of defining it. The mind free of greed, hatred, delusion. Like a, like freedom sounds great. 
Okay, I think there are. <laughs> uh, I hear a couple of levels in, in your comments and question. On one level, we can talk about freedom, which is actually accessible to us in any moment of non-grasping. Right. And we, we have many of those moments, and I'm sure you've experienced that, where the mind is caught in something, and it, right, we let go. And that is an experience or a quality of freedom in the mind. Right? And in that moment, there is freedom from grasping, freedom from delusion, freedom from aversion. And so there is that experience of momentary freedom which is accessible to us. I would be careful about getting attached to assumptions about what's possible or not possible, because those assumptions might actually be very limiting. The Dharma is vast, and it's very mysterious, and there's a lot that we don't yet know. You know, and it might actually be possible to uproot defilements. You know, maybe we're not, we haven't yet had that experience, and so not to necessarily blindly believe it, but I would also not necessarily blindly disbelieve it. Just kind of keep an open mind to the possibility, because it's certainly uh, talked about in the teachings, and there are people in their bodies who have certainly experienced that to some extent. Maybe some of the defilements have been eliminated, although others still remain, but there's that experience of the possibility, yes, this can happen. So in both ways, I would rest in the kind of immediacy of the freedom that can be experienced right now, you know, from moment to moment, with an openness of mind to actually what might be possible. Sometimes we, I think we uh, actually limit ourselves by a view that something can't be done. And anything can be done. And we all can become Buddhists. Why not? You know, so just that openness of vision is, can be tremendously inspiring without 
without fixing an idea or a limitation of possibility, uh, for me is really inspiring. Even as I see all the defilements <laughs> coming and going. We need to stop now. Just a couple of kind of little. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.